You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Now, my backyard isn't very big, but it's big enough for a lot of squirrels. And I watch these little guys, you know, they've got cute little hands and big black eyes and those fuzzy tails and so forth. But I also have a hummingbird feeder back there. And these squirrels, they get up to that hummingbird feeder and they start chewing on the food that I bought for the birds. So are they cute critters or are they pests? I mean, it's kind of complicated. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we give you the wide-angle view on science and technology. We love them, fear them, are annoyed by them, use them, and sometimes eat them. But how well do we really know animals? Our views of them are often simplistic. The appealing panda, the cuddly kitten, but also the lazy sloth or the dirty rat. So we may not fully appreciate how extraordinary animals are, and it's a case of positive feedback. Our aversion to some animals keeps us from getting to know them better. In this episode, research that corrects a menagerie of misunderstandings about our fellow fur-feathered and scaly friends, the co-director of the recent documentary, Rodents of Unusual Size, and how termites might just help save the planet. But before any of that, we might just have to get over ourselves first. It's Creature Discomforts. Dogs, cats, muskrats, ostriches, pelicans, iguanas, rats, chimpanzees, antelope, sharks, spiders, toads. I mean, they're all, well, animals. We conveniently forget that humans are in that list, too. We are also animals. However, we observe the amusing, the terrifying, the occasionally odd behavior of other creatures as if they inhabit a biosphere that is separate from our civilized own. As a result, some of our observations about animals, however well-intentioned, superficial. And you don't have to be clever as a fox to recite a few popular tropes like quiet as a mouse, dumb as an ox, and that sneaky weasel. That's right. If I had an elephant's memory, I could do better than say bloodthirsty bat or brave as a lion, but enough monkeying around. The point is we make easy assumptions about animals based on their appearance or some aspect of their behavior. And as humans, who conveniently forget they are animals, We want to be accepted and appreciated for who we really are. This means taking time to understand the context of what seems like bizarre behavior. For example, let's say we hear a guy scream, Here's your friggin' pastrami sandwich. And then he throws a deli sandwich at someone. Well, to a casual observer, That guy's nuts. But then you find out that he works for friggin' deli. Thanks for choosing friggin' for all your deli needs. When it comes to other animals, we don't always take the time to understand the context of their behavior or the behavior itself. It's easier to go with our quick impressions, says zoologist Lucy Cook. And that's not because we don't love our furry and feathered pals. It's that we look at them through a human-centric lens. Things change when we consider animals in the context of their own existence. The Truth About Animals is Lucy Cook's book, Stone Sloths, Lovelorn hippos and other tales from the wild side of wildlife. Although she admits that some animals do seem to go out of their way to put us off. 
consider the thermoregulation habits of the vulture, an animal already at a disadvantage, some would say, for its less than appealing beak and physique. <laughs> so vultures are wonderful, extraordinary, beautiful fantastic creatures but they are much maligned because of their rather unsavoury habits one of which is dining on the dead um, which has won them few favours particularly given the fact that they look like the grim reaper themselves which hasn't really helped but they have another rather unsavoury habit up their um, sleeve as it were which is um, urohydrosis which is basically a scientific euphemism for pooping on your legs in order to keep cool it gets really hot out there on the savannah, you know, and one of the issues you have as an animal is trying to keep your temperature down. So what they do is they will defecate on their legs, and that's a very liquid form of defecation. And so that will then evaporate and will actually cool them in the same way that sweat would do for us. It's just, you know, perhaps even more unseemly than sweaty armpits. All right, so the way it keeps it cool is the same way that, well, as you say, sweating or or spritzing some water on your face, it's the evaporation that cools them down. Precisely. You make the case in your book that we have biases against some animals because we misunderstand them, but I understand what you describe perfectly. I understand why we have an aversion to vultures given this kind of hygiene habit because, you know, if humans did this at a cocktail party, uh, that would be considered a real social blunder, whereas the animals seem to be able to get away with it. They don't offend other animals or other vultures in this case? Absolutely not. No, they're, they're just getting by surviving the best way that they can. And, and you know, I, I sort of applaud them for their ingenuity. I think evolution has done a splendid job in the case of the vulture. And, you know, vultures, as I say, they're much maligned. People don't like them. They're creepy. They eat dead things. And it's perfectly natural that our stomachs would be turned because, obviously, if we were to dine on carcasses we'd be very, very ill ourselves. So that revulsion that we feel for vultures is natural. Unfortunately, what that translates into is that with certainly with animals like vultures that we find unappealing, we don't tend to want to put as much money into trying to conserve them. And in the case of the vulture, that's a very big mistake indeed because vultures are basically forensic cleanup units with their disinfected feet and their hoovering up carcasses that are filled with bacteria. They're doing an incredibly important job for the environment by getting rid of all of this bacteria and rotting meat. Actually, there's been a huge dramatic decline in vulture numbers in in India by as much as 99% in some cases. It's estimated it's cost the government billions of dollars because of the subsequent rise in stray dogs and rabies as a result of the loss of vultures doing their cleanup job. So... We can be very um, judgmental about what we like and what we don't like. And actually, those judgments are, are emotionally based and not always you know, necessarily the wisest. Why is that? What's driving our misunderstanding of animals? Is, is there some common denominator in that? So there's, there's various different types of mistake that we make. But the first and foremost thing that we are sort of compelled to do, it seems, as a species, is to look for our reflection in the animal kingdom. So... I think, you know, as a species that we're quite insecure and we're constantly looking for our reflection in the animal kingdom. And it's not always appropriate. Just because something looks like our behaviour or looks familiar to us doesn't mean to say that, that animals are behaving like us at all. You know, a classic would be there was a shot the other day that went completely viral of two penguins and they looked like their flippers were touching and, and everybody's like, oh, look how cute. Those of these penguins are so in love. You know, they weren't. They were just walking out of the sea at the same time and their flippers just managed to touch. But we are compelled to anthropomorphise about animals and that has got us into a lot of trouble and continues to, I think. We all think that penguins are are really cute and that is because they walk upright so they look like little humans but they wobble around because their legs aren't really engineered for for use on land. They're brilliant in the water and work as a rudder but they don't really work very well on land so they stumble around helplessly and that triggers our innate need to nurture. So, you know, that's very hardwired in us. So so we, we are compelled to love penguins and we think the best of them. Have animals Mm. suffered uh, terribly because of our misguided views of them? I mean, is there an example of that? I, I suppose the vulture is one, but are there others? Yeah, I mean, totally. We have used and abused the animal kingdom to our own ends endlessly. And there are dozens of species that have fared very poorly, either because of the way that we think about them or because of the way that we've decided that they should be 
useful to us. We have a habit of thinking that we are in the centre of the animal universe and everything else is just there to serve us, and that's misguided. So, for example, amphibians, frogs. Frogs were, believe it or not, used as the very first pregnancy test. If you inject an African clawed toad with a woman's urine, if she's pregnant, then the toad will, within 48 hours, lay eggs. And so that used to be the standardised pregnancy test from the 1940s to the 1960s. Now, as a result of that, toads were exported all over the world to do their sort of pregnancy prognosis for all sorts of women in all sorts of countries. And when they ceased to be useful, when the the test was no longer used, a lot of those amphibians were released into the wild. And the problem was... What we didn't know about them was that this particular, the uh, the African clawed toad, carries a fungus. It's like this sort of typhoid Mary of the amphibian world. Is it has immunity to this fungus, which is now killing out amphibians all over the world. So uh, I think the numbers are, are in decline by about 40% are hurtling towards extinction. And this fungus that's spreading around the world is partly to blame. Let's talk a little bit about the sloth. Uh, the popular perception of the sloth is that it... Well, it's it's sloth-like. I mean, it's slow, but that doesn't mean it's lazy. Uh, and uh, I read that one reason we don't understand this animal terribly well is that we tend to observe it upside down. What's the truth about sloths? Well, a sloth, you see, is a classic example of us um, imposing our values on, on an animal and not understanding the context of its life. So, yeah, we have judged the sloth. We have damned it with a name that speaks of sin, you know, and we think that it's lazy and somehow evolutionary redundant. But they are incredibly successful creatures. They've survived for over 60 million years and and they're very plentiful in the jungles. They're doing really well. One of the reasons that we have got them wrong is because they live their lives upside down, which is an energy-saving device. It's a brilliant way of, of spending less energy because you need only 50% of the muscle mass to dangle from a tree as opposed to hold yourself upright. The trouble is, is that if you turn a sloth the wrong way up, gravity removes its dignity and they just sprawl on the ground they literally cannot they don't have the muscles to hold themselves erect they can't do it so they sort of drag themselves along with their claws like you know a dying man just short of a watering hole Um, and we look at them and think that they're pitiful but that's just because we can't see them in the trees and when they're in the trees they're magnificent when they move they are incredibly slow but incredibly graceful and very different to when you see them like a classic quadruped, the right way up or the wrong way up for the sloth on the ground. I can see that that's truly a remarkable uh, adaptation, I guess you could call it an evolutionary adaptation. But animals also can use a whole bandwidth of communication that humans do not. I I think bees see in the ultraviolet or whatever, or they can hear uh, frequencies of sound that we can't detect. Do these other communication channels play any part in our misunderstanding Absolutely. You know, lots of animals use scent to communicate. And that is obviously something that we can't see or understand or hear. It's invisible to us. And pandas, in fact, they're one of the animals that really rely on scent as a form of communication. Now, pandas are one of those animals that that's widely misunderstood. People think that because they're somehow evolutionary redundant and they're rubbish at sex. And the reason why people think they're rubbish is because they don't procreate well in zoos. But actually getting animals to breed in captivity is incredibly hard. You know, all animals need to get in the mood. You know, they're no different from humans in that way, but they need the animal equivalent of um, a nice glass of wine and a bit of Barry White in order to get them in the mood. And if you're a panda, it turns out that a lot of that sort of seduction or, or courtship happens as they leave scent for one another that tells them all sorts of things about potential partners. And without the female being able to choose from a range of different scents to choose her male, you just plonk two pandas in a cage together it ain't gonna work so that's how a sense that we can't really understand smell that communication that scented communication means nothing to us and so we don't understand it and we've misinterpreted animals as a result i can't recall who wrote this but somebody said something to the effect that animals don't just live in a different world they inhabit a different universe is that really true 
Yeah, I think that's a great quote. We see well, we hear well, our sense of smell is okay, but different animals have heightened senses or, or other senses are less well developed. And so, yeah, their sensory realm is, is very, very, very different from ours. And so it's really hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes and to try and work out what's going on. Well, finally, Lucy, uh, we tend to stereotype our fauna friends although I guess calling them friends might be just another example of anthropomorphizing. But what would be the benefits of understanding them better, I mean, aside from our pets? Well, understanding animals is really important for conservation. You know, we're in really catastrophic times where dozens of animals are going extinct every single day. And for us to understand them and understand their world, how they work, is only going to make us better equipped to cohabit the planet. Lucy Cook, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. It was lovely. Thank you. Lucy Cook is a zoologist, and she is the author of The Truth About Animals, Stone Sloths, Lovelorn Hippos, and Other Tales from the Wild Side of Wildlife. So it's an important point, the one that was made, that if we think an animal is gross or dumb or we have some reason to recoil from it, we might not be motivated to care about that animal and uh, conserve its habitat, for example, in the case of the vulture. And more than that, we don't understand why they're doing it. I mean, the animals are not deliberately being gross or anything like that. That's their lifestyle. And there's got to be a reason for it, because otherwise they wouldn't be around doing it. So we've got to resist this temptation to, you know, consider their behavior in the same terms that you would consider somebody invited to dinner. (laughs) It's true. Animal behavior is complicated. And remember that humans are animals, too. Coming up, can 20 million rodents be wrong? Well, yes, if they're native to South America and they are now eating their way through the Mississippi Delta. The co-director of the documentary film, Rodents of Unusual Size, next. It's Creature Discomforts on Big Picture Science. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. When you consider monster films, it's usually not the fuzzy animals that take over. Ants camp out in the sewers of Los Angeles, giant lizards rampage through downtown Tokyo, and just to prove the point, here's an exception to the rule, a movie that dared to work with an animal that is not repellent, Night of the Lepus. When a rabbit is injected with a serum that causes mutations, it escapes, of course, and then as rabbits do, replicates and replicates, and then... Attention! Ladies and gentlemen, attention. There is a herd of killer rabbits headed this way, and we desperately need your help. Those angry growls coming from the rabbits are a warning to hide your lettuce, folks. Uh, Now the problem the critics, and frankly any sentient brain exposed to Night of the Lepus, had was that the rabbits never seemed scary. The miniature models and the bumbling bunnies, not to mention the stilted acting, produced more giggles than chills from 1970s moviegoers. Judd, Judd, now calm down. Calm down, he's gone. The rabbit's gone. But in 2018, the incursion of a rapidly reproducing fuzzy animal into the southern United States is no laughing matter, although reactions vary among those who come across the giant rodent known as the nutria. Well, I always like to describe nutria as basically, imagine like a giant New York City sewer rat. They have these rat-like you know, hands and a big, long tail. Other people describe them as kind of cute little beavers. And on the one hand, the scene is reminiscent of the weird and comical stuff of grade B sci-fi. Giant, herbivorous, semi-aquatic rodents with orange buck teeth 
cast in the roles of pernicious swamp invaders. And indeed, the campy element is in part what prompted Chris Metzler to make the documentary film Rodents of Unusual Size. But as the film describes, there's more to this story, because the nutria are not a typical invasive species. They were purposely introduced, brought here by humans in the 1930s, to supply the fur industry. But then, like the fictional hormone-disrupted lepus, they escaped. Now, 20 million nutria, which is more than four times the human population of Louisiana, are swimming, scurrying, and eating their way through the fragile coastal wetlands of the Mississippi Delta. And they're a problem, not just in the Pelican State, but also Oregon, Washington, and Maryland. And like the killer bunnies in sci-fi, they're being hunted. But unlike the Night of the Lepus, the stakes are very real, involving the livelihood of Louisianans, the health of a disappearing wetland, and the killing of millions of animals that arrived by no choice of their own. I want to tell y'all a tale that's crazier than hell. Back in the 1930s, during that Great Depression, people were hurting. And a few folks, including that guy, E.A. McAhenney, whose daddy invented Tabasco sauce, decided to do everyone a favor and started breeding these exotic 20-pound rodents that had been brought all the way from Argentina up here to Louisiana. Y'all heard me right. 20 pounds. These things were huge. These animals came out in 1958 like an invasion. All the grass that the muskrats used to eat, they cleaned it like a baseball field. Now it's all water. Look at the roots. They don't go deep at all. Anytime the water hits it, it just washes it away. They breathe so much. Every three months, she's having a litter. All my family is from over here. But if the land's gone, then me and my family don't have a future. So if I help wipe out the neutrals, then that's better for me and better for generations coming down. So that's why everyone out here on the bayou has to take a stand against an invasion like you never have seen of big old swamp rats. I'll tell you that some of the things that are very distinct about Nutria. So they have rat front legs, but then they have webbed back feet, so like they're like a little duck. They don't smell so good. They smell like a wet dog. They do make some unusual noises. It goes, ee, ee. But they're very kind of nervous about humans. And so while there are a lot of them and they're invasive to Louisiana, they'll kind of scatter off when you get nearby. My goodness. All right. A Nutria is a rodent. Right. So what are its closest relatives? I mean, it's also known as a swamp rat. So I presume it's related to rats. Uh, tell me about, you know, closely related critters. So uh, Nutria rodents, they're closer to things like capybaras and beavers than the kind of normal rats that we think about. A lot of people confuse capybaras and Nutria. Capybaras are the largest rodent in the world. But they're much cuter, and capybaras actually have kind of four regular legs, where as a nutria looks more like a rat. They're a semi-aquatic animal. They're herbivores in the sense that they only eat vegetation, particularly roots. Most nutria are maybe about 15 to 20 pounds. But one of the big problems that they have in regards to being an invasive species is that they breed really quickly. So like within three months, four months, you know, a baby can start reproducing, and they have litters of six to eight babies. And so you can imagine that they're more prolific than rabbits. And what about their teeth? I've read that they have red teeth. Kind of reminds me of, a, I don't know, a vampire maybe. <laughs> well, while we consider Nutria kind of cute once you get up and close and personal, from far away they kind of have this kind of horror-moving look in the sense that they you know, look like these supersized giant rats. But they do have these giant front orange teeth. The teeth are orange because they feast on roots, and the roots are rich in iron. And so the iron basically manifests themselves in the orange teeth that you see. Some people are actually making jewelry out of them in Louisiana. Okay. So in your movie, and the title of your movie is Rodents of Unusual Size, and I guess this is unusual size. You said 20 pounds. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, pretty big, and they can get up to 30 or 35 pounds, but most of them are about 20. Okay. That's heavier than most of the squirrels in my backyard. Uh, now, in your movie, Nutria show up in Louisiana swamps, also in urban canals, on golf courses. Just how invasive are these creatures, and how are they destructive? I mean, what do they eat that makes them so destructive? Yeah, so Nutria brought to the United States, or specifically Louisiana in the 1930s, to basically help with the fur industry. The thought was is that a lot of people harvested muskrat, and Nutria are four or five times their size, and they're like, well, 
this is just a lot more fur. So they started these fur farms during the Great Depression. And of course, like a lot of great human ideas, they didn't think about the consequences. And the Neuturia either quickly escaped or were let loose into the swamps. That wasn't a problem at first because they just kind of laid in wait. And they reproduced and reproduced. And they quickly took over the area and uh, displaced the muskrat. And so from the 1950s to the 1970s, many Louisianans harvested wild Neuturia for fur. But of course, once fur became less in vogue, there was no incentive to wind up harvesting the fur. And they basically sat in the swamp, multiplying and multiplying until the late 1990s, when there are about 20 or 25 million Nutria. Uh, the reason why Nutria are a problem in Louisiana is that they're um, vegetarians. They like to eat the roots of the plants in the wetlands that keep the soil together. This soil and the wetlands help protect Louisiana from storm surge and hurricanes. And when you lose that soil in the land, it doesn't come back. And so there are many acres of land there lost each year to erosion that's accelerated by the nutria. All right. These guys are brought up from South America, but it turns out that they're a good match to the environment of southern Louisiana. Uh, all they ever wanted to eat is there. And I assume they have no natural predators. Otherwise, they would have been held in check, right? No natural predators in Louisiana, except human beings. And Louisiana's just natural climate works out very well for the Nutria. Argentina and South America, where the Nutria were originally brought from, don't have these problems because the natural cycles of the seasons keep them in check and then also some of the predators. Many people ask, why don't alligators in Louisiana eat them? And it's like, alligators eat Nutria. The problem is, is that once they eat one Nutria, that's a pretty good meal for them for a week or two. And so there's so many Nutria that it's impossible for the alligators in check, and heck, it's hard enough for the humans to keep them in check. All right. Well, I mean, keeping them in check, that uh, presumes there's a problem, and you've hinted at it, a major environmental problem in the Mississippi Delta. Tell me how severe this problem is. I mean, is it something that if I were living there, I would notice? So if you lived in Louisiana, or particularly southern Louisiana, you've seen a nutria, and you've probably seen them uh, very up close and personal. You've probably even eaten a nutria, just given the way that things work there. With that said, during the 80s and 90s, nobody was out there hunting and harvesting uh, Nutria. In the late 1990s, the state realized that they had a problem. Millions of uh, giant rodents that were eating up the wetlands, and this was causing increasing damage from hurricanes and other storms. So they needed to figure out a way to incentivize people to go out and hunt and trap these animals like it had been done in the past. And so they came up with some different creative ideas. One was maybe we could encourage people to eat them. Maybe we could encourage the fashion industry to start using fur again. And then the more kind of recent and most successful program is a bounty program where they pay people $5 a tail. So for every nutria you kill, you cut the tail off, you bring it in, and you turn it in. And with some of the folks that we spent time with is that they might go out for a half day and catch anywhere between 300, 400 nutria. So you can imagine it doesn't pay too bad. If you're a good shot. Uh, you know, per hour, uh, depending on how many hours it takes you, I mean, that would be pretty good salary. It might be better than brain surgery. It's absolutely, for the people that have the skills to do it, it works out very well. I mean, if you put me out there with a gun and you gave me all day, I don't know if I could hit one Nutria, even though there's so many of them around. You say there's a $5 bounty for the tail. Why the tail? And what happens to the rest of the Nutria? That's always the conundrum with uh, killing the Nutria in the sense that they need to wipe out these animals because they're causing such havoc environmentally. But there isn't real no market for their fur right now. And so the reason why the state pays for the tail is it's basically proof of life in the sense that you killed a nutria, you found it. And these animals are fairly large. They're 20 pounds. So imagine if you killed 300 in a day. That's a lot of animals to bring in. And so what they do is they have rules and regulations to kind of ensure proper disposal in the swamps. But it causes problems in the sense of you're throwing a lot of organic material into the waters that create algae blooms, et cetera. And so there are different kind of independent-minded people there and trying to encourage people to bring the fur in and figure out some kind of sustainable ways to create clothing that people might find attractive. And even recently, there's a dog food company that's buying the meat that they harvest. I wonder what the flavor will be described to be. <laughs> I don't know. You a know, taste of the swamp? Yes. I mean, I, I have to confess, I've eaten Nutria a couple different ways. So if you'd like to know how it tastes, I'm, I'm happy to share. I would like to know. Well, as you can imagine, in Louisiana, they're kind of legendary for their cooking. And I can tell you, boy or girl, young or old, everybody knows how to cook and cooks really good. So we've had it uh, cooked in kind of an Asian stir fry by James Beard Award winning 
chef Susan Spicer, and that kind of tasted like pork tenderloin. But we also had uh, jazz musician uh, Kermit Ruffins barbecued up for it. And I can tell you that that was just as good as pulled pork. And so I often think it tastes a lot like different varieties of pork, um, but it's a very lean meat. So you don't have the kind of fatty bacon taste that you might have with some pork. Okay. Uh, well, that would be the disadvantage. But the advantage is uh, might be better for you. Absolutely. It's a very healthy meat. I think the biggest problem with encouraging people to eat nutria is, of course, the looks. When you look at the animal, it obviously looks like a giant rat. And even myself, when I saw it cooked up, I was just like, I just needed to close my eyes and put it in my mouth. And once it was in my mouth, it tasted good. Can you describe one of the more memorable moments in making this film? So in making this film, there's many memorable moments, saying partly it's because of the people that we spent time with. I mean, on our first Nutria shoot when we're out on the airboat and we just see dozens, if not hundreds of Nutria running around and we're like, oh, shoot. These really do exist, and this is a problem, and they start knocking them off, and they're piling up on the airboat. I mean, that's just kind of a, a moment that just kind of shakes you to the core, especially coming from not a hunting family. Chris, this reminds me a bit of what happened in Florida many years ago, at least I think happened there. I read about it, where people decided it was too cruel to turn alligators into belts, shoes, handbags, whatever. So they stopped doing that, and soon alligators were overrunning the state. Um, are there folks who are trying to protect the nutria and say, look, you know, this is this is a nasty thing to do? You know, it's an interesting question because, you know, given the way that many of us feel about animals in society, you figure that there somebody must come to the defense of the nutria. And, you know, in the late 70s and 80s, I think um, at the kind of heights of the animal rights protests that were going on, there definitely were people that were kind of advocating of like not killing them. However, as they've seen the destruction in Louisiana, I think a lot of people see it as this necessary evil in the sense that the new tree are affecting not just, you know, we humans, but many other animals in this very lush environment. So I think a lot of people in the animal rights community have just kind of turned their head the other way in the sense of just recognizing that uh, it's a necessity. Um, with that said, ironically, the people that most defend the new tree are often urban city dwellers, usually rich people in New Orleans, because they see the nutria in the ponds on the golf course or running against their backyard, and they see them and they just think they're really cute. And so they start feeding them like ducks, et cetera, and of course this contributes to the problem. But of course these more wealthy people are usually not affected by the environmental damage that the nutria are doing. I assume that the state of Louisiana hasn't considered bringing in some, some sort of predator. I mean, <laughs> there's plenty of precedent for that, but then the predator becomes a problem. So are they afraid of that? Yeah, so the state's always kind of been open to ideas because, I mean, it's been such a big problem. And um, there have been some predators discussed at points in period of time, but I think most people have come to their senses and say most of these situations when you introduce another animal to deal with it, that there's some sort of unintended consequences that you couldn't measure. And so in general, the states said, look, we need to figure out a way where we kind of do no harm to the environment and what are the ways that we can kind of maintain it as it is. Chris Metzler, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks again. It was fun. Chris Metzler is the co-director and producer of Rodents of Unusual Size. So I, I guess not all vegetarians are harmless, even though they, they don't eat you. They may eat something else that's important to you. I'm sure that by the 1930s, nutrias had been studied in their natural habitat in South America. But what failed to happen here is to consider the consequences if they were brought here and then got loose. Nobody thought of the environmental harm they could do. The nutria is a pest, but it wasn't considered a pest when we brought it here in order to farm it for its pelts. So... In many ways, we created this pest in southern Louisiana. Coming up, they skitter about, eat each other's feces, and you do not want them in your house. But would you change your mind if the animal we're talking about is the inspiration for the houses of the future? Meet these critters up close next. It's Creature Discomforts on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired. 
a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, well, if we fully appreciated the highly evolutionarily adapted behaviors of other animals, we might stop regarding them as merely fuzzy critters to be cuddled, soft pelts to be worn, or fanged invaders ripe for eradication. After all, just a reminder, what would a casual observer think of seeing you in the kitchen in your underwear, the ones with the minions on them, using one hand to stuff fists of cold spaghetti in your mouth while scrolling Instagram with the other? Not sure that any amount of context will help you there. Uh, Yeah, sometimes human behavior challenges are refined sensibilities. But still, some animals just give us the willies. See if you can identify these guys. It's a social insect. It lives in large colonies of millions of workers with one or more queens. A worker has a big bulbous head like a Sharpay, but it has no eyes. It has two long antennae on it. Then their body itself is kind of teardrop-shaped. We've labeled termites as pests for good reason. Termites can eat wood, grass, money. They can eat books. Worldwide, they do at least $40 billion worth of damage a year. Termites have excellent immune systems. They have internal immune systems, and they also have a social immune system that is enforced by soldiers. They also have another kind of social immune system, which is that they spread their feces about. They groom each other obsessively. The result is that it's extremely hard to kill termites with biological agents. Now, what happens next is that we're about to make the case for the virtues of the termite. So we ask that you clear from your mind images of the mounds of wood bits behind the wallboard in your basement or the ragged holes in your prized book collection and prepare yourself for... Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology. Reporter Lisa Marganelli's book about the upside of this underbug. She spent eight years studying termites with researchers from a wide array of scientific and technological fields and learned that despite being publicly maligned, termites are essential contributors to the planet's environmental health. And they are even pointing their little antennae towards exciting future technology. Okay, Lisa, we want to hear more about that. But first, what's the most impressive thing that you've seen termites munch their way through? I would have to say the most impressive thing is probably some sort of power system insulator. Um, where I saw this. What? It's not wood, though. <laughs> I, I know. Well, <laughs> they're also capable of eating other things. So in Australia, people talk about them eating tires. They eat the coating on wires. And... Uh, I happened to be visiting Berlin, and someone who worked at a government lab that was formerly in East Berlin took me into their basement where they had different colonies of termites that they've had for uh, 30 years or so, each growing in kind of a vat um, in temperature-controlled rooms. And they have these to test different industrial materials on them. So they would take like a whole intact insulator of some sort, or transformer case, and they would jam it down into the vat of termites, and they'd leave it for a month or so, and then they would pull it out, and what remained, what the termites had not chewed away, would look like a sculpture because the termites had been gnawing away on the sides of it in sort of strange organic patterns, really. We do have to overcome our disposition not to like termites, to prepare ourselves to hear in what ways termites are beneficial. I think there's two things. One thing is is to watch a collection of termites. 
if watching ants or other insects grosses you out, which it does me, I feel itchy when I look at ants. I don't feel that when I look at termites. Ants move in a very uh, sort of spiky, jagged way. Termites flow. And to me, they're not as disturbing to actually watch. And then the second thing is, I would say, termites have an extraordinary aesthetic. When they're building a mound that can be, say, 15 feet tall, they feel inside of it with their antennas to find rough areas. And wherever it's rough, they pull away the dirt until it's smooth. And so when you open up a termite mound, it's this extraordinary world with these very smooth, beautiful interior spaces. And I think if you look closely enough at termites, they become quite beautiful. Now, when they're making their their mounds, what are they making them out of? And what is the material that results? Well, different termites build in different environments. So the termites that I watched for the longest time were Macrotermes natalensis, and they were in Namibia. And they build with little balls of mud, which they make in their mouths. And the mud is somewhat cemented with some kind of special termite saliva. And we don't know exactly how they build, but a basic description of it is that one termite will put down one dirt ball, and another termite will put down another dirt ball on top of that. And then they keep piling up the dirt balls until they have like little peaks. And then those little peaks kind of connect to make frilly little walls. And then those walls, some of them have arches in them. They begin to build up. And one of the things that we know drives them is the smell of fresh air. Inside their mound, it smells really intensely of termite. It smells really intensely of fungus. And, of course, there's all this feces, and they're constantly transferring microbial sort of starter culture to each other by mouth-to-mouth and mouth-to-butt. So there's this intense smell in there, and when any fresh air comes through, some termites run from the fresh air into the mound and set off an alarm, as sort of a, they they make a sound. And then other termites grab a dirt ball. They build and build until they've cut off the fresh air smell. So just to be clear, the fresh air is not something they're drawn to the way that we are when we want to step out of our buildings and get some fresh air. The fresh air suggests that there may be holes or vulnerabilities in their defense system. Yes. If you're a termite, you're constantly being attacked by ants and anteaters and aardvarks and aardwolves and anything else that can hack their way into your into your mound. So one of the things that you do if you're a termite is you you know how to patrol your perimeter. And the way that they do that is that when they smell fresh air, they know they need to go do something. What What is the reason for these complex structures, though? I mean, they could probably just make a very simple mound. I mean, maybe, I, I would say maybe like an ant mound, but perhaps that's not simple either, so I shouldn't say that. But why so elaborate, almost like a, like a palace, <laughs> an insect's version of a beautiful palace? Well, it's always an interesting question of why something that's evolutionarily derived, like a bug, is building something so elaborate, like a mound, or the particularly these um, macrotermes mounds in Namibia. Um, we know that the mound itself has several functions. One of them is that it works kind of like a lung. It manages to both protect them from wind and cold, you know, keeps moisture in, it keeps too much rain out when it's really wet, it makes the air fresh, it also keeps too much fresh air from coming in, and it also regulates the temperature. I was going to have you describe the ways in which these structures inspire roboticists, but your description that you just gave suggested that they would also be of interest to architects. Yes, they're of interest to both roboticists and architects. Um, And there are several architects around the world, one in Zimbabwe, one in England, and another one in Australia that I know of, who have gone to termite mounds and looked for ways to use passive ventilation or passive cooling, more efficient ways of cooling human structures. Um, But the roboticists are really studying what drives the termites to put the dirt balls down, and how do those 
individual interactions between termites and dirt balls and the environment create a large mound. I mean, one of the huge mysteries of the mound is how do these little creatures with only, you know, maybe 200,000 neurons each, how do they build these huge complex structures without a master plan? So the assumption is, is that they have sort of a termite rule book or what would we would call sort of an algorithm, and that somehow they're following a set of rules which results in the building of a large mound. So the idea is, could you build maybe small autonomous robots, put them in motion, and they could build it on their own? Is that the idea? Absolutely. So you could make autonomous construction robots that you could send to Mars or Afghanistan or the Fukushima nuclear plant, and they could build and put in barriers or build a house um, without any kind of on-the-ground guidance from humans, Um, and that eventually we would have our, our homes be built by, you know, robots instead of working people. You write that termites are the poster bug for the 21st century, a little guide to big ideas. Isn't linking it to our technology's future an overreach? I don't think so at all. Uh, Everything that termites do, we want to do. And while we've spent the last hundred years harnessing the big forces of nature, what we want to do in the future is be much lighter on the earth, much more like a termite. Um, We want to have autonomous robots. We want to be able to eat wood the way they do Um, in a laboratory setting or in an industrial setting. We want to be able to genetically alter microbes and put them in tanks and put wood scraps and paper scraps and old books into these tanks and have them have the microbes break them down and be able to create biofuels out of them. Um, And finally, we want to be able to somehow harness the termites' ability to keep especially the dry parts of the planet fertile, even as the climate change is Termites are are fascinating in their own right, Um, and as we adjust our attitude toward seeing them just as pests, you remind us that only a few of them are actual pests, that the majority of termites are not considered pests. Isn't that right? Yes, they're solid ecological citizens. And, you know, they also drive fertility in some of the sketchiest areas on Earth. So, yes, most termites are good. Some termites are bad. The termites that are bad tend to be the ones that really have adapted to humans or where humans are somehow encouraging them. Land that has been disturbed is very attractive to certain kinds of termites, and those are the pest termites. One of the earliest stories of termite migration is that when the Spanish ships went to Peru back in the uh, 14 and 1500s, they picked up a kind of dry wood termite that they then carried around the world. The invasive termites that you find in the southeast of the United States traveled over here on pallets uh, for munitions and, and other things um, right after World War II. We should get at the notion of what a pest is and even the idea that an insect or any kind of animal is bad because that's not a biological category. It's really kind of a human category. It's something that we call animals that get in our way. I mean, a bed bug is a pest because it's biting me. Um, And termites who are pests are eating my house. But it causes us to kind of ignore all the other termites who are off you know, doing good things. We look at a lot of animals through an anthropomorphic lens and we judge their behavior by our our own standards. But conversely, even people who are trying to defend animals that explain why they're important to us will draw on the argument of what they can do for us. And I'm wondering if identifying how animals can help us, if it has problems itself, if it's a kind of validation cop-out, why can't we just admire animals simply on their own terms see the world the way that they see it and not the ways in which they're useful to us? Well, this is a really interesting question. So, But it happens at all different levels. I mean, on the one hand, you've got really highly trained roboticists going out and staring into termite mounds for a month. And um, they wouldn't be there if they hadn't been able to convince somebody to give them money. 
and on the other hand, uh, one of these roboticists designed a, a tracker that allowed us for the first time to see termites as individuals, to realize that they have memories, to realize that there are termite leaders and termite slackers. And so, you know, there, there's an interdependence between our seeing certain animals as useful and our ability to kind of deploy scientists out to look at them. If we just said, well, termites are beautiful, we could send poets to look at the termite mounds, but they're going to come up with something different than when you send a roboticist or a geneticist to look at the termite mound. Has anyone ever written that you know of, that you could quote from, a poem about a termite? I have no poem to quote. I'm sorry. Okay. But maybe <laughs> You've taken a, me by surprise. <laughs> maybe that'll be a challenge. If someone, if someone could write a poem about a termite, certainly send it to us. Well, well finally, Lisa, um, I understand that termites are the evolutionary cousins of cockroaches. So does that mean that your sympathies and appreciations for the termites and the termites' fine qualities extend to its greasy-shelled cousin, the cockroach? I have not evolved that far. <laughs> what I like, I mean, they, the termites are a highly evolved cockroach, but another highly evolved cockroach is, is the mantis. kind of shows you the amazingness of the evolution and the divergence of the paths of these insects. Lisa Marganelli, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Lisa Marganelli is the author of Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology. Well, thanks to the animals whose keen evolutionary adaptations are evident in helping produce this show, senior producer Gary Niederhoff, production assistant Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. We're also grateful for financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science that is called Creature Discomforts. And if you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find our episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you'll find links there to our guests as well. Oh, and if you never want to miss an episode... Subscribe to BiPiSci on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. Something punctured the metal, not too fast, but with great strength. Now the crates on the truck weren't uh, broken either. They've been gnawed. What? No, it chewed, bitten.